0: I'm going to be reading this morning from Colossians chapter three, verses twelve to seventeen, and uh, when Peter asked me, "What are you? What are you calling your message?" I kind of looked at it and said, uh, "Well, this seems to fit. Keeping the main thing, the main thing. That's what I want us to focus on. Making sure that the main thing remains the main thing." So, Colossians three, verses twelve to seventeen. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have with one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all of these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Father, what a a privilege it is for us, whether here in this building or joined together spiritually through the uh, magic of virtual worship. But what a privilege it is for us to be able to gather, to praise you and to explore your word and to see what you would speak to us today and so we pray that your spirit would work in each of our hearts and that the words of my mouth will be effective as we seek to serve you better as your people here in your world in jesus name we pray amen As I was preparing to come and uh, spend the morning with you and preaching uh, to you this morning, I was also getting ready to give a, a presentation to the new students at the Naval Chaplaincy School and Center in Newport, Rhode Island, where all Navy and Marine Corps and Coast Guard chaplains go for their initial training. And as I was considering what I was going to say to them and then considering what I was going to say to you, it quickly became apparent that while the context is very different, the message is very similar. They're preparing, or they were preparing for their career to be military chaplains. They had been pastors and uh, priests, and they had a lot of experience in parish ministry, but they were preparing to be uh, pastors in the military, which is a very different context. And we gathered together in order to prepare ourselves to go into our Father's world to build his kingdom. To represent Him and to show people that we belong to Him. And so I'm basically, not only because I'm lazy, but it is true, it was convenient. I'm basically going to tell you the same thing that I told them when I was in Rhode Island on Tuesday. To use the Word of God to consider what does it mean and and how do we keep the main thing, the main thing. Chaplains, of course, need to stay focused as they seek to serve God and God's people in military ministry. If they are not careful, there are many distractions that can cause them to lose their focus. And it's easy even for chaplains to forget that they have been called by God to that particular ministry. We as people of God also need to work to keep our focus, as we too seek to serve God and God's people. And if we're not careful, we too can become distracted And we forget that we have been chosen by God to accomplish that very task. And so when I stood before them Tuesday afternoon, my very starting point was the same thing that it is for you as I stand before you today. The main thing for all of us is serving God and God's people. And it's essential that we keep the main thing, the main thing in everything that we do. So let's start there. Uh, I'm assuming you are aware, or I'll give you the benefit of the doubt if you're not, that you have the church's core values listed on your church website. I could ask you to repeat your core values, but that might be embarrassing for all of us. Every one of them, there are six core values of this church, by the way, are directly connected to serving God and God's people. One speaks to the church community, one speaks to discipleship, one speaks to evangelism, one to justice and serving others, one to service and one to worship. And all of them are parts of the task of this body of Christ to serve God and God's people in this place and at this time. In the military, there's always this danger that chaplains have to forget why they are chaplains, and let me explain what I mean by that. It's easy for chaplains, just like any members of the military, to become very concerned about about promotions and assignments, rather than be, to be focused on their calling. It's very easy to focus on what is more is popular than on what is righteous. It's tempting to go along, to get along. It's tempting to concentrate or to concentrate more on what you want than on what you are called to do. And it's very easy to ignore the command that we just read in Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, and instead to focus on what makes us look good or what makes us successful. And obviously, while the context is different, that's true of all of us gathered here today as well. It's easy for our focus on our jobs, or our career, or our education, our status, either professionally or personally in the community, our political leanings, our circle of friends, our families, our 401k, our financial, our personal goals. It's easy for all of those things to become ends in themselves instead of means to the end of serving God and God's people. And there's a big difference between the two. All those things are mentioned are things that we need to do. They're a part of life in this world. But are they the ends or are they the means to the end? A lot of younger chaplains, well, they're all younger chaplains than I am, but a lot of chaplains who are at the beginning of their career or who have a little bit less experience in the military, they write me, they email me, or... When I'm speaking to their class, they ask me for advice. I don't know if they think that this gray hair is a sign of wisdom or if they think that somehow I've managed to be successful and they want to know what the secret is. So here's more or less what I tell them. Yes, there are ways to gain the system, to get promoted, to get good assignments, to get positive fitness reports. But if that's your goal, you've already failed you failed your mission of keeping the main thing the main thing. Every military chaplain, of course, we hope, feels that they have been called to serve God. And some have been very successful in fulfilling that call of God, keeping the main thing the main thing, but it's cost them success in their military career. Because as you can imagine, sometimes speaking truth to power isn't very popular with power. Some have been very, quote unquote, successful in their military career, but they haven't lived up their calling of serving God in God's people. And so while they've achieved rank, or they've achieved position, or they've achieved status, if they're not using it for the right things, then of course, what's the point? Some have what appears to be success on both fronts. And the key for all of them is which is more important? And it's the same for us. Which is more important for us? In keeping with the idea of that the main thing needs to be the main thing, Jesus challenges us in Mark 8:36, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Some of you may remember from when I used to preach here fairly regularly that I often like to look at the message version of the Bible to see what it says about different passages. In the message Bible, that verse it translates this way. What good would it do to get everything you want but lose the real you? What good is it to get everything you want, but lose the real you? Now clearly that's a rhetorical question. There's no good to it at all. If the real you is a child of God, if the real you is someone who has been chosen by God, you've lost the real you if you fail to keep the main thing, the main thing. And so I'm going to mention four things that I think help us do that. I'll refer to them as as guides along the pathway. And they all come from Colossians chapter 3. As always, when we're talking about God's will for us, we begin, of course, with love. It's no newsflash here, but it's not always easy easy to love people. Not even for pastors or chaplains. When we were stationed in Spain, a, a chaplain friend of ours had just bought a brand new car, the first brand new car he had ever bought in his entire life. And He was very excited and he was very proud of it. Shortly thereafter, someone rear-ended him on the Navy base. And when he discovered that my friend was a chaplain, he said to him, I'm glad I ran into you and not someone else. And my chaplain friend said, well, why were you glad you ran into me? And the person without any embarrassment said, well, you have to love me anyway. I'm not sure about the theology of that, but yes, we do have to love them anyway even when, especially when, it comes at a personal cost. As a chaplain, my calling, my task, my mandate is to love every person I come into contact with, and so is yours. And that's not easy for any of us. Maybe God tells us about it so often in the Bible because He knows how hard it is and how easy it is for us to forget it. I mean, the first and greatest commandment, love God. The second, Obviously, love your neighbor. And He doesn't say, and the third is this, or the fourth is this, or the fifth is this. He says, these are the big ones. All the rest of them depend on these. Love God. Love your neighbor. John 13, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are My disciples, if you love one another. Many of us of a certain age used to sit around campfires at church camps and we would sing they will know we are Christians by our love. It was true then and it's certainly true now. The Word of God speaks for itself clearly that we can't claim to love God if we don't love in word and deed those around us, all those around us. Our family members, our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates. Republicans, Democrats, Socialists, Capitalists. No matter what language they speak or what country they call home, rich or poor or somewhere in between, those who cut us off on the freeway, those who take our parking place, and those who get the raise that we thought we were deserved, there are no exceptions. They will know that you are Christians by your love. I want you to to do something for me. In your mind, not out loud, please, because that would be confusing and maybe frightening for those sitting around you. But uh, I want you to say in your head, God commands me to love, and then think of the person that you feel you are least likely or least able to love. God commands me to love blank. Do that a minute. It's probably hard for some of us to put somebody's name in there because we don't want to admit how hard it is to love. Now I want you to change that a little bit with the same name. God commands me to love blank by doing blank. Think about that for a minute. That person who it's hardest for you to imagine loving, God commands you to love that person. And now it's up to you through the guidance of the Holy Spirit to figure out how you're going to love that person. The name that you mentioned might be somebody you have never met in your life and you will never meet them in your life. But how can you show love to him or her? That person may be someone who really did you harm and caused a great deal of pain for you and your family. How can you show love to him or her? Why is this so important? Because this, as we just read, is the way that the world knows we belong to Christ. Not when we love those who are lovable. That's, that's pretty easy. But when we love those who it's hard, very hard for us to love. When I was in seminary uh, just a couple of years ago, I was expected to learn a, stuff, a lot of stuff and I was supposed to be able to explain it. And so we had a lot of exams. We had Hebrew exams, and we had Greek exams. And at the culmination of our time in the seminary, we had something terrifying called the Oral Comprehensive Exam. And we sat in front of five of our professors from the different disciplines, and they all got to ask us questions, and we had to answer all of the questions that they asked. And then when you receive a call to a church, you have what's called a classical exam, where you sit in front of the elders and the the, uh, pastors of classless, and they ask you whatever questions they want to ask you. And I can assure you that at every classical exam, there is some elder who wants to show this young whippersnapper pastor that he knows more about the, what the Bible says than that seminary student does. And he probably does. So we are tested on all of these things. But throughout my whole chaplaincy career, my whole time in seminary, as I was at. Uh, going through interviews for different positions, and as churches were considering to call me, I don't ever once remember somebody said, demonstrate to us how you love God and how you love your neighbor. It was never talked about in seminary. Okay, Tom, you've, uh, you've well, you certainly haven't mastered Greek and Hebrew, but you know enough to, to pass the test. Now, what can you tell us about how you love God and you love your neighbor? I'm assuming that it was assumed But isn't it ironic that the most important thing, according to God, they just assumed. And they've made a test on everything else. I'm not critiquing seminary, well, just a little bit. But what was clear was that the church wanted to know that people knew the right stuff, maybe even more than that they did the right stuff. Yet God is crystal clear that you can know all the right stuff, but without love, it's nothing. I assume nobody here has faith to move a mountain, but the Bible tells us that even if you did, if you don't have love, it's no big deal. You're in the process of of calling another pastor. You've had a search committee that has rightly been looking at his credentials and his background and and his testimony. You've you've heard sermons and you're going to hear more sermons. I don't want you to scare him, but when he comes, you might want to ask him about love. Maybe give him a heads up because he probably didn't get much of that in seminary. But how do you show love for God and love for neighbor? More importantly, how, as you, as our new pastor, how are you going to show? How are you going to teach us to demonstrate real love for God and real love for our neighbors? It's probably true in business, but in the military, there's a, a very common saying whatever interests your commander, better fascinate you. Whatever your commander is interested in, you better become fascinated with. The uh, 150 or so chaplains who I get to work with, they know the things that interest me, and they always remind me of how fascinated they are by those things. What is God most concerned about? I mean, if you, if you just do, do the numbers in the Bible, the commands in the Bible, what is God most concerned about? Nothing. Nothing is close to loving God, and loving our neighbors. A concrete demonstration of love is one guideline to keep us on the right path. The other day, we were having a a conversation about somebody, and and somebody said, "You know, so and so is a really strong Christian." And then somebody else said, "Well, what's what's the difference between a strong? What what does that even mean? A strong Christian?" And we were talking about that they they have a public testimony and different things. But what is the mark? When we say someone is a strong Christian or a good Christian, what do we mean by that? Do we mean they come to church every Sunday? Do do we mean that they tithe? Do we mean that they evangelize? All those are good things. And all those things might be expressions of their love, but the standard for any Christian should be the love that they show God and that they show to their neighbors. And the reason this kind of love is so important is that if we truly love God above all and our neighbors as ourselves, It's almost, not completely, but it's almost impossible for us to be self-centered and selfish. It's pretty hard to be self-centered when your focus is to love God and love others. And when we're not self-centered, when we're selfless, it's easier to keep the main thing the main thing. The second part besides love, but it flows from love, is gratitude. A few weeks ago, Jackie and I were Uh, taking a a drive in Maryland and we were exploring and we came along the highway. There was a sign, an exit pointing us to a town, Gratitude, Maryland. And uh, we had never seen a town by that and Google tells me there is no other city in the whole world called Gratitude. And Jackie made the comment, I wonder what it would be like to live in a place called Gratitude. And I think she meant it literally as well as figuratively. Living in gratitude makes all the difference in the world. Because of my service in the military, Jackie and I have lived apart somewhere around a total of seven years. Uh, Two of those years were when she stayed here in Brookfield. Guess what? I'm not grateful for that. And I shouldn't be. I can be, and I am exceedingly grateful that I have a wife who stood beside me and prayed for me and supported me every day of those seven years, sometimes from 6,906 miles away. We've moved during our time in the military nine times. That causes a great lack of stability and uncertainty in one's family. I'm not grateful for the strain that that's put on our family. But I am grateful that every time we moved, we found a Christian community to be a part of, a place to call home, a place that, that where we built deep friendships that have sustained us long after we left those places. My brother died of cancer when he was only 33 years old. I'm not grateful for that, and I shouldn't be grateful for that. But I am grateful for the promise of the resurrection and the peace that passes all understanding that we experienced in those terrible days. All of us face issues, health, relationships, families, work, all sorts of things that we aren't and shouldn't be grateful for. But even in all of those dark times, especially in those dark times, we find reasons for gratitude. Even when the wrong seems off so strong those times when God reminds us that He is the ruler yet. Gratitude doesn't minimize or make light of pain and hurt, but it reminds us that there is more to the story than just that thing. As we were researching gratitude together, Jackie found a passage in 1 Chronicles 16.4 speaking of uh, the formation of the early uh, Judaism. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to extol, thank, and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And neither of us had ever noticed that verse before, but as we thought about it, imagine this. It was their job. This was their career. This was their task. To extol, thank, and praise the Lord. That was their job description. Well, guess what? It's ours too. We're told to rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And again, back to our text, Colossians 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You have been called to peace. Be thankful. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom and sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, give thanks to God the Father through Him. Gratitude is another essential piece of keeping the main thing the main thing because it continually points us back to God. And just like when we are focusing on loving God above all and our neighbors as ourselves, it's very hard to be selfish and self-centered. If we live in gratitude, it's also very hard to be self-centered because we are reminded daily of to whom we owe everything. The third thing I'll mention uh, may seem to contradict what I said previously, so, so bear with me for a minute. And it's know what you truly believe, and this kind of fits a little bit with what Wally said earlier in the service. Know what you believe. And by that I don't mean know a bunch of facts about God, but rather know what you really hold to be true about Him. Chaplains are involved in times of individual, national, and even global crisis, some of you know that I responded both to the World Trade Center after 9-11 and the tsunami in Indonesia. Two things that, you know, the, the devastation was, was utter and complete. In Iraq, every, every night that I was there for 15 months, there would be a rocket attack on our base. And, and I would, uh, Jackie would say to me, what do you do during those attacks? And I said, well, I do two things. One, I cower. I cower on the ground. I put my helmet over my head and my body over over the rest of my body and I cower. And then I pray. I pray to God for the protection of everybody on that base. As I was there in those terrible situations, I had to know what I believed about death and suffering and pain and loss. About good and about evil. Not so much that I could explain it to other people because In times of real pain and crisis, people don't really want explanations. I know I don't. What they want is something that connects them to hope. When a loved one dies, when they lose their job, when a child rebels, when you face grief or pain of your own or of someone that you love. You see, too many Christians know all the quote-unquote answers until something hits the fan and then they are blown away. The firm foundation that they thought they had wasn't very firm at all. Uh, Speaking of my time in Indonesia after the tsunami, we had a pretty uh, big chapel service and people attended regularly on the ship. And then after we did our relief work in Indonesia, I noticed that some people didn't come to chapel anymore. And when I would see them, I would just ask them, Why did you stop coming to chapel? And they said, because after what I saw in Indonesia, I no longer believe that there's a God. And I saw one of those men a couple years later, and the first thing he said to me was, I still don't believe in God because of what I saw. The problem wasn't the God that they were worshiping. The problem was that they had believed the wrong things. And what they had believed about God did not offer the strong foundation that they needed in the face of such horror. A very simple thing is that there are a lot of Christians who go through life thinking that bad things can't happen to me. I belong to God. God will protect me. God will make sure that I'm safe. God will make sure nothing bad happens to my family. And then something bad happens to their family. And their whole belief system crumbles. They thought they knew God, but they discover that they had a wrong view of who God was. Fortunately, the Bible is filled with many, many, many examples of how the people of God endured terribly difficult times. There's a verse that's very popular, and I like it too, but it's it's so often misunderstood in the Christian community. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper and not to harm you. Popular Christianity says God's got it, everything's going to be okay, be happy. But then you lose your job or you get a terminal illness, and you say, wait a minute. I thought you had plans to prosper and not to harm me. What happened? Can I trust you or not? What the verse really says, if you actually read the verse and the context, is things are not okay, and guess what? They're going to get worse. You're going to be in captivity for 70 more years. That's what the verse says. I have plans to prosper and not to harm you, but you're going to be in captivity for 70 more years. Things are going to get worse, but even so... God is dependable and trustworthy. Not necessarily to do what you want, but what He knows is right. You see, when when popular Christianity reads that verse, they focus on prosper. God's promising to prosper me. What the verse says is, is, God speaking, I know the plans that I have. And the plans that I have are the right plans. Don't put too much weight on the prosper. Put all the weight on the I know the plans that I have for you. Jackie and I live in a um, 36-foot fifth-wheel trailer. We bought it a year ago, and we've lived in it for the past year. We're going to live in it for the next year. You can ask her her opinion of it after the service. Mostly, it's going very well. But when we we move into a new campground, the first thing we do is fill the fresh water tank because even though all the campgrounds we stay in are are full hookups and we're hooked up to city water, we want to have a reserve in case something goes bad. So the last time we moved into a a campground, I spent 15 minutes filled up the fresh water tank, and two weeks later, the city water main broke. And so the whole campground was without water for two days. Now virtually every one of the 200 RVs in that campground had a fresh water tank but most of them were empty because the people said, we have water, we don't need to fill our fresh water tank. They assumed the city water supply would always be there until it wasn't. How do we make sure that our spiritual tanks are filled? By focusing on who we believe and what He really says. By developing a firm foundation and keeping the most important thing the most important thing. And again, if we focus our attention on God and who He is and what He says, once again, it's very hard to put the main focus on ourselves. And the final marker is this. When we are loving God, focused on loving God and loving our neighbors, when we live in gratitude, looking for reasons to be grateful to God for what He has done in our lives, and when we truly know what God actually says in His Word, not what we want it to say, but what it actually says, it will logically result in right action. Listen to this passage from Elizabeth Elliot Leach. Uh, Some of you may remember her story. She and her husband Jim were missionaries in Ecuador. They had a young child. Uh, Jim and four other missionaries went to try to make contact with a tribe that had uh, been unreached prior to this, and all five of them were killed. This was back in 1956. And no, I do not remember that personally. I was not born quite yet then. Elizabeth Elliot writes, and by the way, four of the five widow missionary women stayed in Ecuador continuing to do mission work. That's amazing. When I went back to my jungle station after the death of Jim, I was faced with many confusions and uncertainties. I had many new roles beside that of being a single parent and a widow. I was alone on a jungle station that Jim and I had manned together. I had to learn to do all kinds of things which I was not trained or prepared for in any way. The biggest help to me was simply to do the next thing. Have you ever had the experience of feeling as if you have far too many burdens to bear, far too many people to take care of, far too many things to do on your list? You just can't possibly do it and you get a panic and you sit down and collapse in a pile and feel sorry for yourself. Well, she writes, i felt that way a good many times in my life, and I go back over and over again to an old English poem. The poem says, Do it immediately, do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing His hand, who placed it before Thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotent, safe neath His wing, leave all resultings. Just do the next thing. All of us often feel like there's so much to do around us that it's overwhelming. And more than once, I've asked myself, there's so much hurt, so much pain, so many needs, what can I possibly do? The poem gives the answer, do the next thing. We can't let the overwhelming needs of the world paralyze us and keep us from doing something. Some of you probably have heard this story before. Uh, after 9-11, uh, we had chaplain teams at the World Trade Center. When the second team arrived, they were getting an orientation to what their ministry would be. And one of the chaplains who had just gotten there was clearly overwhelmed. He was, he was in shock by the devastation he saw. And he said, I, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And the chaplain who was showing him the site said to him, well, why are you here? And he said, why, to help, of course. And the first chaplain said, well, do you see anyone around you that needs help? And he said, well, yeah, all of them. And the chaplain said, well, then just pick one and go help him. Pick one and do it. I honor Brookfield CRC for the many years that you as a church and as individual members of the church have exceeded in doing the next right thing. You have pro- you've had projects in Mexico, water in Africa, rescue mission, Camp Kelvin, the Alpha Course, Haiti, and the list goes on and on and on. We change the world and we honor God and we show our love when we continue to find the next right thing to do. Sometimes it's as simple as crossing the street to say hi. A simple act of kindness to somebody that we see every day. Or it might be buying a truck to drill wells and everything in between. Doing the next right thing. It's the answer to the still small voice that helps us keep the most important thing, the most important thing. My friends, we have been marked as God's own. People have every right to expect that they will see Christ in us. And even more so, God expects, God demands that people see Christ in us. This only happens when we keep the main thing, the main thing. Loving God above all and our neighbors as ourselves in order to keep the focus on them instead of on us. Living in gratitude so we don't think we are at we are where we are, wherever that might be because of what we've done but because of what God has done for us and through us. Knowing the firm foundation on which we stand so that we can do the next right thing to the glory of God our Father. Let us pray. Father, there are so many things that distract us. Upcoming flights, chores, uh, situations with those who we love, The world around us, our nation, our neighborhood, cutting the grass. There are so many things that cause us to focus on things that, while they may be important and all have their place in time, are not the main thing. We want to serve you. We want to serve those around us. Lord, be our vision. Help us as we seek to be the men and women that You have called us to be here in this, our Father's world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.